my roads, my roads. Without government, who's going to build my roads? This is probably the most common and one of the most poorly defended attacks against libertarian and narco-capitalism, minarchists, and even fiscal conservatives and federalists at, at times. And privatized roads really scare statists. The main argument against them is that you know, somehow there will be discrimination against the poor or it will just be chaos. But really, the poor are the ones that are discriminated against for the gas tax. The poorest people can only afford cheaper, older, used, used cars, typically have worse miles per gallon. They, they rarely drive hybrids or electric vehicles. It's true, typically, everyone tries to, to economize. But what about the poor single mother with three or four children that needs a larger car? That gets less gas mileage. The statists don't realize how oppressive and regressive the gas tax actually is. For the average driver in Los Angeles that fights their way through bumper-to-bumper traffic, the average cost of gas, the gas tax, is about $800 per year. The daily commuters down the I-10, downtown LA, to Santa Monica corridor, paying gas taxes more than double just the people that commute from downtown to Santa Monica or vice versa double the city's most recent budget for road maintenance and construction of new roads. Across the city of Los Angeles, the conservatively estimated 2 million average daily drivers paying gas taxes an estimated 10 times the city's current budget. Obviously, a part of the gas federal and a lot of state and one may argue this helps build and maintain roads that are less traveled, but important nonetheless. And in a privatized world, you wouldn't get that. But there are plenty of businesses out there that have what are called loss leader products. And there's no reason to think that private road companies wouldn't have loss leader roads. Government isn't the only entity to do that. In fact, they're the only entity to do the opposite, where everything is a loss leader. They do, they do a very poor job, and if the current quality is expected to continue under, the, you know, under private ownership, all else equal, it would only cost about $77.50 per daily driver per year to maintain the current budget for the construction and maintenance of the roads in the city of Los Angeles. <clears throat> in the hands of private ownership, there would be much less waste, so the cost would be – you know, probably half, if not less than a half of what it is today to actually get a road built. If the demand for roads was such that the cost today remained the same, and it was just transferred from the gas tax to some sort of toll system, which we'll discuss in just a bit, even if it were under city ownership, that's going to happen anyways. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. I don't want to digress, but let's say that the cost of per daily driver remained exactly what it is today. $800 a year. The Los Angeles City road system would generate about $1.6 billion in revenue annually. The amount of reinvestment that would be able to take place if that money were in the hands of private ownership would revolutionize the road system. If the private owners did not do so, the shareholders or potentially co- cooperative own- owners, which if you listen to the entire show all the way through, we'll get into the scenarios of how private road systems might actually look. Um, but the owner, the, the owners, the stakeholders would either fire the executives in charge of the misallocation and pretty quickly, or if they didn't fire competitors would come, come along and, you know, who found the current owners and executives, uh, relationship 
just inefficient and would have massive financial incentive to, without even using eminent domain, go around and pitch a corridor of landowners on the higher and better use for their land and how getting paid out the value now plus a little bit of ownership in the road management company perpetually would be a superior deal to the, their current situation. And lastly, there's a dual mandate that's ridiculously oxymoronic that government tries to uh, impose upon everybody. The first one is that government wants to dampen climate change, which they say is caused by fossil fuel emissions. And as a result, there have been all sorts of incentives from government to build higher MPG cars, miles per gallon, to build hybrids and electric cars, for consumers to buy hybrid and electric cars, for consumers to trade in old cars for credits put towards a new car. And at the same time, they want more revenue from a gas tax. Are you starting to understand how ridiculous the state can be? Like California politicians, knowing that they're going to run into this issue with the gas tax coming up because of their other incentives, have proposed instead for a full-out mileage tracking and taxes on the mileage. And they proposed this not too long ago. It's a massive intrusion in privacy and just a continuation of their justification for their atrocious management of the existing highway and road system. I say no more. I say that the government has proven to be fully inept, especially here in California, and particularly in Los Angeles. Potholes are everywhere. There's traffic unless you travel between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. You know, deaths and no lane courtesy rules. Your stale, continuous outward expansion of the existing road systems. No incentive for driving during low traffic hours. It's not as if no one complains about traffic and the state of the roads currently. Take notes tonight, folks. Next time a statist asks you the gotcha question that just won't go away, you'll have the ammunition to cause their brain to implode from a logic overload. Don't shy away from it. Don't be embarrassed. Put the question on them. Why do they think government has done so well when they suck? All right, everybody, another wonderful show for you tonight. Tonight's episode, we deal with the question that is subject to uh, you know, the second most memified libertarian position, taxation being theft is the first one. And that is, as those of you who are on time to the podcast uh, you know, caught my monologue just now, are the, the roads. You, know, you, might, you don't even need to listen to the, uh, the, the, the monologue. You could have just read the title and you would have gotten that. But libertarians are constantly having to defend the privatization of, quote unquote, essential government services to their leftist peers, and even those on the right that believe that the market is just too risky for certain things. It's too, you don't want to leave that in the hands of the market. But the fact is, government is always worse. Always worse at providing services than market competition is. I mean, think about the post office or the DMV. And compare that to your experience at FedEx or car registration renewals when you can do it online through a private agency. At which do you have a more satisfying experience? Roads are not some mystical engineering magic that occurs when government deems new roads net needed. In order to build roads, governments tax people and then they hire private contractors. As discussed in the opening monologue, the money that drivers pay through the gas tax is far more than what is used to actually build the roads. When governments finally do get around to contracting the building of a new road or expanding an existing road, it can take years, and in some cases, it's, you know, as a famous South Florida case I can remember back in the day when I was growing up, 
you know, road expansion can take a decade and sometimes multiple decades. And people that live in urban areas understand this. People already pay for their roads. They just don't get nearly the value of their money and, frankly, are being overcharged even if the roads were immaculate. For those that say that there's no financial incentive, we already debunked that. There's a ton of financial incentive to build roads. If you're charging a dollar a day to people driving on some of the most popular roads in America, I mean, we're talking about in the billions of dollars in revenue. And when we get later on into the scenarios of how ownership would look, you'll see how it all fits together. And you got to be, if you're on the side of of liberty, you got to be willing to take some of these, uh, some of these really difficult cases that people think are gotcha questions. Like, oh, this guy wants to, this guy wants to have such a small government. How are we going to have roads? You got to be able to defend that. You got to defend it well and well enough to where you actually convince people. That's why I felt it was important to do this episode because I know we like to joke with ourselves. A lot of us, you know, kind of get the logic in our head. But it's not saying that we go out practicing all the time. And, and when it does come up, a lot of times you're just like, don't be ridiculous. But you got to be willing to defend some of those, you know, what the statists consider ridiculous. And because they really actually do think it is ridiculous that, that someone would want such a small government that roads would have to be privatized. You know, for those that think that government needs to build and maintain roads less traveled but necessary for things like military travel – the transportation of goods and people between one urban region and another, and the roads that companies would charge, you know, and, and think that companies, if they owned it, would charge more on these roads. We also debunked that. I mean, it's, companies offer what are known as lost leaders. Their products and services, there's no reason to think that, that they lose money on in order to attract other clients to, to, other, uh, you know, to other products and services that they offer. And there's no reason to think that the roads would be any different. You're not just going to have total desert areas if that was the case then there would be really high demand to build a road and you know through that region it would be really high demand to to connect those two areas and there's already existing roads so we're not talking about not building the road from this point forward it's it's maintenance and the cost of maintenance and things like that because a lot of the, the interstate highway system is exists already you know one of the reasons you don't just see spot a statist might say oh well why don't if it's such a good financial incentive? Why don't you have private road companies popping up everywhere? Well, first of all, I'm I'm not quite sure the legality of that. If you know, sure, different areas have different rules. Um, you know, homeowners are so you know new developments. They build roads inside their uh, inside their communities, and then you know typically homeowners associations pay a little bit of money to to fill potholes if there's one in in their neighborhood. But you get less potholes because they're gated, and you know you don't have a bunch of big trucks driving through there. So there, it's, it's, there, there, is, there are some that fill specific needs, but in regards to com- competing with the interstate highway system, well, there's already a free version. So, of course, you know, the, the financial incentive is, is quashed because the competitor charges nothing and, and charges a gas tax to then pay for it and borrows money to pay for it and all, all the rest. So now the leftists and statists will probably go to their favorite straw men which is greedy capitalists. They'll probably say that if the roads are owned privately, then the company that owns the roads can discriminate based on race or can discriminate based on, you know, how, what kind of car people with less fancy cars that are poor, they can outright block the traffic of certain people, which of course is what governor Chris Christie, uh, you know, had his underlings do government officials do 
on a vital bridge from New York to New Jersey. No, but government doesn't do that, right? Oh, wait. Yeah, they do do that, and they have done that. And when they do do that, it takes years to get any accountability, any justice, if you ever get it. And if executives of a privately owned company did something so asinine, they'd be ousted almost immediately. The CEOs get ousted for donating money to, you know, I know one, one CEO, I talked about this the other day on an episode, got ousted from his company because he had donated like a decade earlier to a, um, you know, anti-gay marriage bill, which, which I don't, I have no horse in the race on the matter. I could care less if gay people get, get married, uh, go for it. You know, I think that, that everybody has a right to get married and the government should have no say in it. It's not really a government thing, but he had donated money to it and you still have the right to have an opinion and you still have the right to donate money to something. And at the same time, private people who don't like that opinion have the right to boycott it and to show their moral sentiment uh, towards the issue with their dollar votes and their feet votes. And, and the board and the shareholders, I guess, decided to oust him. And you're saying that if a private executive, you know, had his underlings block traffic, that people would just kind of look the other way? Get out of here. That's crazy. Of course they wouldn't. You get fired immediately. So now the question is, who are the owners, right? And there are many different scenarios and ways private roads could actually play out. The most politically feasible is some sort of cooperative co-ownership where you know, a system of roads or a single road or a significant strip of road are placed into some sort of corporate or trust structure. And the users of that road, the primary stakeholders dependent on the road, become the owners. And basically you have one share per individual and the city just simply you know, cuts its losses, turns it over to this structure and the people that are uh, you know, the, the dependent stakeholders on the road, the road systems in LA, you may have as many as four and a half, five million people. You may have as many as 17 million people if you took the metro region and you could have possibly broken up into different chunks, different companies and different owners, you know, ownership cooperatives uh, so that it's more local and managed more local. And, and that way you're not taking money from one neighborhood and, and putting it into a, to another and you could have loss leaders in, in more of the rural areas that would be owned by – co-owned by a cooperative of, say, like on I-5, a cooperative of people in the Bay Area, in L.A., in San Diego, all of the farmers along basically the entire state of California, the state of Oregon, and the state of, of Washington, you know, at the time of that would become stakeholders, cooperative stakeholders – in that, that that particular road system and there are a number of you know property owners that, that own these roads too so we're not just talking we're talking about stakeholders it can be pretty broadly defined i mean if you ultimately boiled it down you know it, it's at the end of the day you could end up having you know basically to where everybody owns a share in one corporation i, I would prefer it not to be that way so it's not a monopoly still I think ultimately the federal government would probably try to do that with the interstate system. You know, people would, oh, well, this area gets more traffic and they're going to have lower costs because more people drive on it. And, you know, we're going to have, we need, I, I think, you know, for the, maybe there's, there's, you know, a, a Western Southwestern interstate system company or, 
you know, you get what I'm saying. And it, it wouldn't, hopefully it wouldn't just be one monolith. Uh, I think that that's probably what the government would push because it would give government a lot of power over that monolith. But I think it, it would more likely be series of neighborhood roads would be much more privatized and much more localized to the local stakeholders, the local business owners, the local, and the, the entire road would be in a trust or in a corporation that each person owned a individual. So you wouldn't have anybody where they owned more of the road than somebody else or had a, a, a you know, more of a right to the road than somebody else. But at the same time, 5% of them, 5%, 5%, not 51%. You want to talk about protecting minority groups. 5% would be able to launch a proxy vote at any time and go and make their case as to why the executive should be replaced. And if the executives are viewed by a majority, a simple majority, then the executive is ousted. They lose their salary. Maybe they have some sort of you know, golden parachute package or something like most do. But you then hire a new executive. Maybe you get rid of some of the board members and put new board members on. It's still – the difference is, is that you're able to do it a lot quicker and a lot uh, more – a lot faster and you know you can't do that in government. You have to wait until voting terms exist. So you have you have you have uh, shareholder votes and, and cooperative stakeholder votes. You know those shareholders will be able to vote on executives and trustees who would make the ultimate decisions, who would execute a, upon a budget that they present and consumer pricing that they present. They present a plan for road expansion. They present a plan, plan for maintenance, for rebuilding, for other necessary investments. If approved, they'll execute execute upon that. They'll report to stakeholders. In the event that, like I said, in the event that people don't like it, they can just five percent can launch a proxy. If they make their case well enough, they can vote it out. There's no waiting two, four, six years for new leadership, and no more hoping that this time government will be responsible. There's no more single option strategy for our roads and infrastructure. You'd have a competitive landscape where. The existing company wasn't doing a good job. There'd actually be a financial incentive to fix it. Under a private road to, and a financial incentive all the way down to the individuals who actually are, are now becoming owners of this company, that if, if tourists don't want to come here because the traffic is horrible and they hate having to drive around the city, they're gonna be, there's going to be a financial incentive to lighten up traffic, to have more peak low pricing, uh, and, and there's going to be an incentive to build more roads to, to unclog congestion at certain points um, and to be smart about it. You expand the areas that, that are, are most congested first, or maybe you have, um, maybe you have a, a very short new lane that actually goes up on top for a little while, and it could go, you know, you'd have all sorts of innovations to try to make sure that the traffic flowed really nicely and properly. And ultimately, it would be all for much less of a price because I think it, it would have to be. It would, it would just ha- it would have to be for less of a price in, in order for the the cooperative to accept it, you know, and and possibly even over time, if done properly, you know, a slight profit for the individuals that depend on that system. If the road is efficient enough, like I said, to attract non-stakeholders to come to the city and to use those roads, or maybe like in LA, if there's local roads that are really efficient, that local stakeholders own have done a really good job with maybe people coming up from orange County hop off and pay a quarter to go through a certain neighborhood or, or pay you know a dollar to go through a certain neighborhood. Cause it's going to save them a lot of time. 
because the, those stakeholders have paid a little bit more attention to their roads and they have good, good systems for, for traffic flow. And, you know, at the very least, maybe it's not a profit, but at the very least, the stakeholder could maybe expect to receive an occasional reimbursement as opposed to just ever rising gas taxes. And for my final thought, I want to leave everybody out there that takes this debate seriously with one final piece of ammunition, and that's the environment, especially for leftists. And we all know that those on the left believe that the biggest threat to humanity is human-caused climate change. For opponents of yours that are obviously in this position, the checkmate actually comes pretty easily, assuming that, you, assuming that you've walked them through the logic as to why private ownership doesn't mean no roads – that there are financial incentives, that discrimination and shutting down roads is what happens when there's public ownership and politics involved. Assuming that you've walked them through the numbers with either my LA example or with your own research, the dual mandate of immaculate, no limit funded roads and more hybrids or more electric vehicles, they just can't exist. Suppose so this question. I assume you would like to see less gasoline used, right? To which they'll probably answer, oh, yeah, yeah, of, of course, climate change is the number one threat to humanity. And then you pose the follow-up question. You want to move away from gasoline eventually altogether, right? Uh, to which they'll answer something very similar to that. And you still want to have roads, correct? And rambling, rah, 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 of course, of course, why I, you're the one that hates roads. So in a world with no gasoline... How are roads maintained without taxes, that pe without taxing people that don't use those roads directly? If they cannot come up with the answer, I, I would just throw in there, it's, it's either mileage or a toll. Given that poorer people, as a follow-up, typically have longer commutes, but more direct commutes, wouldn't a mileage tax be regressive? Yeah, yeah I guess it would be. What's your point? You get where I'm going with this? And so essentially the least discriminatory and regressive system would be a toll. And given that it would be a toll and tolls versus the gas tax are really the only rational reason, and it's a flawed, fallacious reasoning for having government-managed roads to begin with, at this point, wouldn't it just make sense to have a private company collect tolls and manage the roads under one of the scenarios I described or one of the following scenarios if you haven't described it to them yet? If you haven't explained the scenario, I would go especially for leftists with the co-op structure they described earlier, especially, especially for, for people that are on the left. We throw in there that, that everyone owns it, but just privately as an individual, and that it could even provide some degree of public welfare income or basic income if it's efficient enough. When you start showing how the capitalist privatization, private ownership of these resources can not only benefit everyone – but actually benefits the poorest the most by lowering costs, having less regressive pricing models, and potentially some net income or net worth that could be passed on to these cooperative ownership owners that, uh, that, that own these roads. And when you do that, you plant a seed and you create a situation where they begin to realize, people on the left, that the fallacious, illogical contradictions that exist, they, they recognize them at least a little bit they, they recognize the contradictions in their philosophy. And they begin to try to create logical axioms 
know, but those thoughts that you planted in their head, they just won't get out. They stick there. They begin to tear down their trust in their own philosophy by pointing out their own logical contradictions quietly. And then these people begin to look into liberty a little bit more. They begin to understand that humans are not all evil, but they're also not all saints. And they begin to understand that the incentives of and logic behind voluntary exchange are superior to the, to the incentives behind and, and, and the logic behind coercive exchange with government. They begin to see that you can be both self-interested and want to make the world a better place. And then eventually they can begin to see that there's no such thing as a common good, that individuals have preferences, and that ultimately what they're advocating is government rationing and price setting either directly or indirectly. Eventually, eventually, if you plant the seed properly and you water it enough, they'll have to give up the philosophy that they simply just cannot buy anymore in their own head, or they'll go actually insane. Now, to be clear, a lot of people are just stuck in their ways. But the majority of folks out there that are coming of age do not identify with specific party ideology. And liberty lovers, while we're more numerous than ever, ever before, we dwindle and compare. We're dwarfed in comparison, excuse me, by the number of folks that openly want socialism that are in the same generation and don't identify with party ideology. We have to do a better job. We have to plant these seeds. The reason – and Walter Block once said in a, in a speech that I saw him give uh, that you know, the reason he wrote books like, like Privatization of Everything defending the, you know, or Privatization of the Roads, uh, you know, capitalism, in, in the water, in, capitalism in Water, and, um, you know, and, and Defending the Undefendable – is because you have to be able to logically defend the t- some of the toughest positions, toughest positions of your ideology. And once you're able to do that, once you get rid of the fear and people can kind of say, I mean, you know what? Yeah, I could, I guess, kind of see how that would work, especially if it's kind of a co-op and you know, you start to move them closer and closer to it. And right now we look, I know a lot of you think that that are out there think, oh, you know, what's his name? You know, Gary. He got what three percent, four percent final tally. And no doubt, there are some states where he did well. But Gary was, to uh, put it lightly, kind of a little, a little wimp when uh, it came to some of the the tougher positions. Um, you know, he talked about entitlement reform, but he didn't. He didn't call for private social security. Uh, it, was, it, it was not a great job defending the tough positions, which is you've got to get people over the fears of the most radical things they think about you, right? That's the key. If they realize, okay, you're not, you're not fascist. Obviously you want to just leave people alone. You know, you're, you're a libertarian. You don't really give a shit what people do in uh, their own private life. You just don't want other people imposing it on, on, on you and you know once they get over the fear of of some of these kind of what they think are fringe ideas of private road systems and every road roads have tolls and you got to pay put a quarter in and and once you get past 
you know, some of the logical fallacies by, uh, behind the way that they think about it, and you actually walk them through why this would be a smart and efficient system, that's, that's one thing that they can check off their box that, that they'll say, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to riot over it. You know, I, I, I still maybe, maybe, you know, it could work, but I'm still skeptical, but I'm not going to riot over it, right? And, you know, in the liberty movement, this is going to be very important because, look, the, the, the kumbaya, you know, live and let live, that's all great. Everybody, let, but what about specific policy? How does this, why is it that you advocate for this? You got to be able to defend it. You got to be able to defend the tough ones. You know, I want you guys to know that if Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic nominee, he's a socialist, okay? And, and just – I'll put this out here because I've heard this – I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it in other places. Uh, libertarian socialist, that's not a thing. Libertarian socialists are not a thing. You cannot both want to – you cannot believe in the principles of, of the Libertarian Party or libertarianism or even liberty – and not believe in property rights. And if you don't believe in, you know, if, you, if you're calling yourself a socialist, what you're saying is that you believe you have the right to expropriate the property of one person because you believe you can make better decisions with their resources as to how to serve some mystical common good that does not exist. There's no such thing as a common good. Everybody has preferences. Some people like apples. Some people like oranges. Some people like bread. Some people like rice. It, that's why markets work, okay? People have preferences. Entrepreneurs try to meet the, be- the high- next highest or the highest preferences of consumers with private money, taking private risk, making private judgments in incremental steps. Yeah, you got o- Obama for the past eight years has been telling us what industries we should give him money to invest. Why doesn't he just go start a venture capital fund if he's so fucking smart? And knows what companies to invest in. And, you know, I don't want Donald Trump, no matter how good he's been at building buildings, being able to say, well, I'm really good at this. I'm going to take your money. You know, I'm not doing a Donald Trump impression, but I don't want any government person being able to say, well, I'm really good at this. I'll be able to do better by you. No, I want to be able to make that decision voluntarily. And we've got to do a better job of planting the seeds. Because we're, we're that close. If, if Bernie hadn't been screwed, he would have been the president. We're that close to having a socialist president, which is far more dangerous than Donald Trump, people. Look at Venezuela. There are more children dying in Venezuela, children and infants dying in Venezuela, than there are in Syria. That's disgusting. And you think that it can't happen here? Watch human capital dry up, which is the essence of productivity. Human capital, which leads to innovation, which leads to increased productivity and abundance, that is the essence. And when that human capital dries up, because people don't have an incentive to develop the most higher, the highest echelon of human capital, the high engineering, the high sciences, when there isn't a strong incentive to develop those, in the marketplace, and when you can study something that's fairly irrelevant and leisurely, or when you can, when you can have a, a minimum wage job 
that you and your wife make more than the median household salary if you work 2,000 hours a, a year at minimum wage, which is what they're trying to push. A $15 minimum wage, 2,000 hours a year is $30,000 a year. If there's two working adults in a household, both working at the minimum wage under a $15 minimum wage, they will be making $60,000 a year before taxes. The median household income in the United States of America is $55,000. What they're trying to do is price out everybody that makes less than the median income or push them on the salary, which their overtime rules and it just got crushed. So that, that, that's kind of a good win. But we've got to get better at defending this. We're right on the brink, folks. And you don't want to see the suffering that Venezuela has seen. And look, we've got to be pros at defending liberty and defending these positions. We cannot just have a bunch of little one-liner quips and this and that. We've got to be able to defend the logic. We've got to be able to do it quickly and knowledgeably and efficiently. I know I'm not always the best at doing it, but I try to make really good points. And I try to wrap it up. But it's very easy to pitch a, a bunch of broken po- promises and government goodies. And that's what they do. And for us to win, people must understand that for every dollar worth of value that you get from the government, you would get two and a half times that in the private market if we had just left the money where it is to begin with. We've got a lot of work to do, but we, we also must remain optimistic. And ever ready for an intelligent debate with people that did not ha- do not have our views, we've got to be ready for that. One of the best ways to win is to attack the opposition's biggest fears. One of them, one that people in the liberty movement are, are constantly mocked for, are the roads. And I hope those listening feel a little bit better prepared to fully defend private roads and, and to put those questions to the opposition. You've got to leave them questioning what is so great about the way government does things. And in order to do that, they must also get over their disbelief in the ability of the market and entrepreneurs to not only build and maintain the roads, but to do so more efficiently and at a lower cost with greater stakeholder satisfaction. I hope tonight's episode will help you to do so the next time you get mocked by a status for uh, thinking that the market couldn't handle something so mystical as a road, right? It's, it's crazy. It's, it's such a, a magical part of our lives, those, those roads. Who knows how they come about if it weren't for government? All right, folks, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, so I won't be hosting an episode tomorrow, but I will be back on Friday at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Macro View. Follow us on Twitter, at The Macro View. And you can find our episodes on Podbean, on SoundCloud, on Google Play Music, on Blog Talk Radio, which is where I broadcast, do the live broadcast on Blog Talk Radio, and on our website show page on, at macroview dot, uh, macroviewnews.com, macroviewnews.com slash the macroview. Um, also, I will be posting a weekly post that's all the episodes. So if, if new listeners come across an episode and they want to say, you know, say they want to catch up on, on past episodes, you know, new subscribers that come to the website, whatnot, they can, they can just catch up. So go to macroviewnews.com and on the homepage, you'll also find some of the absolutely best liberty leaning news sources and think tank publications all in one spot. 
it's it's really for my convenience, but it's also for your convenience. It's a good spot for me to go and get my daily news. Um, and this is till next time, folks. Uh, yeah, I'm your host. I'm I'm Andrew Smith. I'm going to be signing off here. I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoy the holiday weekend. Catch the Friday episode. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, until then, signing off. Have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs>